Hello and welcome to the Bang to Rights podcast. My name is Pete Murray. I'm a lecturer in multimedia journalism here at Manchester Metropolitan University. I'm joined by my MMU colleague, Dave Porter. Hi, Hi Dave. Dave. And by <laughs> MMU journalism student, Imogen Campion. Hi, Imogen. Um, first off, welcome to season four of the podcast. And for the start of this new decade, we're now available on a new platform. You'll find us from now on on Spotify at last, as well as Stitcher and the Apple podcast uh, platform. And of course, on the Northern Quarter SoundCloud feed. Now, on the show today, we'll be looking later at the first of the documents to emerge publicly from the Meghan Markle Mail on Sunday court case. We might also have a little look at some of the coverage of Meghan Harry and their decision to step off the Royal Roundabout last week. But first, we want to look at the police, stop and search, and then more widely about coverage of crime and race in the news media. This comes after a public meeting here at MMU last night, in which an audience of students, community activists and others tackled the Manchester Mayor Andy Burnham about stop and search issues. Now, Imogen, you were reporting on that for the Northern Quarter. What did, what did people have to say? Um, it was a very tense environment and Andy Burnham was very much under fire from members of the audience. You know, just people saying how they've been, how they felt they've been racially prejudiced from the police, and how they've been stopped and searched for no plausible reasons. Um, on the panel, there was Roxy Legain, who is founder of Kids of Colour, and she told some chilling stories about children that had been stopped and searched. And she also mentioned one of some boys who had been attacked, and upon the attack, they'd been spat on by the police. And then... Um, uh, let, let's hear a little bit of that now. Let's hear what, what Roxy had to say about that. Well, as this overwhelmingly affecting working-class black and brown children, I'll also include the working-class white boy who a Greater Manchester police officer pushed up against a van and spat in his face while I stood there. And obviously when I became, when we became, um, rightfully challenging, the officers put their colleague in the van, came back, turned their body cameras on, and then started talking very politely. When it comes to stop and search, not only does discrimination decide the search, but the searches are full of incompetence and blind allegiance to colleagues. Roxy Lagan there from the, from the Kids of Colour charity. Now, um, that, was just, that was one of several things, and she, she described a lot more, and we'll put a link to some of her work and to the charity um, in the show notes for this. But how did Andy Burnham respond to, to that and some of the other questions that came from the audience and from people in the panel? Um, obviously he couldn't defend what the policeman had done, but he also has to remain quite impartial to GMP police because he's the voice of the people. You know, he said he wouldn't put a stop to stop and search there and then because he didn't believe that that is what the public would want. Um, he did ask Roxy to speak to him more directly about that story so he could look further into it. This is what I've got to try and, try and balance. I've got to, the public concern about, let's say, knife crime over here but clearly you're articulating a concern, let's say, within the black community or the Asian community that says, but we're being targeted, you know, we are disproportionately uh, being negatively targeted in response to this uh, public concern. And what we've got to do is find our way through what is a really uh, challenging, uh, challenging debate and challenging uh, issue. I, I personally couldn't stand here tonight and say, I understand why the figures that Patrick presented are as they are. And I don't want to just to go to a thing that people, individuals in Great Manchester Police are inherently discriminatory or racist. I don't believe that they, that they are. Mm. Something, I think, is systemically behind those figures that needs to be constantly uh, looked, probed and challenged. Because, you know, as I say to you, I, I'm, 
You know, I, I do not want to uh, oversee discrimination of, of, of any form, but I have to at the same time uh, oversee an effective police service that is free to, uh, to, to do the job and make people safer uh, on our streets. Overall, um, the mayor did get quite a hard time from the audience, didn't it? And things got a bit tense in some places later, you know, later on in the evening. It did, it did. Um, there was quite a lot of tension in the room, particularly with some women who had taken their children. And one woman said that her younger son was called a rat by police and that when she was called and told this by her older son, she just said that it wouldn't be the first time they were stopped and searched. And it's almost what she expected. Right. Well, we'll have a we'll put a link to your piece on on that um, on the Northern Quarter. We'll put a link to that in in the show notes. Um, but one of the panelists there at, at that event last night. Thanks very much, Imogen. We'll, we'll come back to you maybe in a moment. One of the panelists there was a senior lecturer in criminology here at MMU, Patrick Williams. Pa- Hi, Patrick. Welcome to Bang to Rights. Hi there. Now, Andy Burnham was very keen to turn this discussion around to issues around knife crime rather than stop and search, exactly, um, and the impact especially that that has on BAME communities in Greater Manchester and I guess elsewhere as well. But you had some significant stats that demonstrate some pretty damning links in all of that. But let's start off with one stat that Andy Burnham gave to the meeting, which was that he'd only had five complaints about this. Mm. What, what did you make of that? I found it a really... Interesting, surprising, um, and if I'm being honest, an unbelievable statistic. The notion that only five individuals have complained against stop and search. And given the experience of stop and search, particularly, particularly by black, Asian and minority ethnic communities, and also some of the harrowing stories that we heard disclosed and spoken about last night, I find it inconceivable that only five individuals have complained about the misuse of stop and search. However, we also have to acknowledge that what that may represent is a fear that some of those young people spoke about in terms of a fear of coming forward and disclosing those experiences or complaining because it takes a brave person to put your head above the parapet and complain against the police when you have an everyday experience of being policed, particularly for young people. So there may be some truth in that only five individuals were confident enough or had enough support around them to be able to complain about their experiences yeah and i kind of got the feeling from from lexi and from that mother that you mentioned imogen that they didn't when andy burnham said well give me more information about these cases and i got the impression that they didn't really want to because it might compromise in lexi's case in in in, uh, roxy's case it might compromise her source you know and she would probably have given uh, anonymity pledges to them i think with credit to roxy there's a sense of having to protect those individuals who were who disclosed to her, and not opening those individuals to further scrutiny by the police. So within that, then it makes sense that there's going to be a reluctance for some individuals to come forward. And that's why, and to Andy Burnham's credit, he suggested maybe identifying an alternative way in which individuals can complain about the police, which didn't necessarily require them to approach the police and make formal complaints. And I wonder whether that's something that MMU and other people can support and assist the police in developing. I guess people reacted quite coolly to that, but I, I suppose there were there were some nods around the audience that, yeah, maybe that is a way forward, some kind of community organisation that might act as a liaison between, between those different parties. Yeah, there was a cool response, but I guess what it does also acknowledge is that Mayor Burnham was thinking through Perhaps his understanding that five complaints is possibly not a reflection of the disdain or the negative feelings of stop and search. So 
the desire to maybe propose an alternative, a different solution to how individuals can complain, should, I guess, be applauded and let's see where that develops to. We started off with some stats from Andy Burnham. You had some stats for the meeting, um, including what was it? A 10% rise in stop and search leads to a 0.01 reduction in crime or something? Yes. Is, that, is that correct? Yeah, that's a correct. It was research undertaken by colleagues over at the University of Manchester, but was also supported by the National College of Policing. And it was based on 10 years' mm -hmm. worth of data from, um, based on the London Metropolitan Police. Um, it was an extremely rigorous piece of work, and clearly that demonstrates that increasing levels of stop and search or the use of stop and search will have a negligible effect on levels of um, crime across society. And that may vary depending on crime. So there's some suggestion that it may be positive for drug offences. Um, I assume if the police turned up on spinning fields on a Saturday night, then they may detect lots of drugs in that space and maybe deter individuals mm -hmm. who may use substances. But essentially, and over across the piece, a negligible impact. Now, that's, I hadn't heard that statistic before, and I think a lot of people at the meeting hadn't heard it before, but, that kind of plays into one of the things, one of the reasons we wanted to get you on the podcast at all is about coverage of this kind of stuff in the mainstream media, in the mainstream news media. Do you think, do you think newspapers and the news websites generally are doing a, a fair job of this? Um, not at all. And if I was being forthright, I believe the media, local media in particular, but also the, the national media, almost contribute and have now become part of the problem. Part of that problem of almost exasperating these racialized tropes around young black and brown people within certain communities. So when we begin to talk about violence and violent crime or knife crime, I would argue that today the media front pages depict knife crime as a black problem. It's a problem that takes place within black communities. And in essence, it becomes linked with notions of gangs or it becomes linked with grime music. And these are the front pages of our newspaper. So within that moment when we begin to talk about crime and the problems that may be experienced by particular communities, these are racialized to particular communities. And my concern is, or my questions are one, why does, why does the media engage in these practices? But more importantly, how do we attempt to disrupt some of these negative narratives and discourses that are fed into our homes on a daily basis? I'm, I, I've got some answers to that, but no easy ones. But Dave, what, what do you think about all I of think that? I think Patrick's right to pick up on what might be called a moral panic. And, you know, most journalists are white, middle class, you know, middle-aged, don't live in what might be called, you know, inner city areas like Marcel Hume, live in affluent suburbs. Um, the, the agenda around the knife crime is very much kind of a right-wing agenda. Certainly, it, it's an easy stereotype for journalists, especially national ones. I'm not sure about uh, maybe regional ones. I'd hope, you know, somebody, an organisation like the MEM will be more uh, objective, perhaps, uh, and looking at, you know, gang culture in Manchester, if, there is, if it exists, for, for example. Um, but I think it's easy for national media to, you know, to produce scares around knife crime mm -hmm. and therefore um, legitimise the use of stop and search. I, I wonder how much of the public understands what's going on and what powers the police have, and what you know, what uh, how far they can go. I think there's a level of ignorance which the media don't address. Mm. Mm. One of the things we were talking about, Patrick, before we came on the air, was about the the role that the police and the Crown Prosecution Service. <laughs> quite often provide in, in giving information to journalists. So if there's a big court case going on and a journalist wants access to the victim's family, for example, then they have to do that through the police or the CPS, and that, that gives them a certain colour, 
to coin a phrase, mm. that, that colours the story, doesn't it? Yeah, and that would accept there's a, a mutual relationship. There has to be a mutual relationship between mm. reporters and the police as a way of conveying those stories within the media. My concern is, and there was a case recently, about two or three years ago, where a young person was fatally stabbed um, within a local community. But what we very quickly saw within the local media, and I know we're making reference to regional press, but the mm. Manchester Evening News were at the forefront of this. Yeah. And they presented this narrative, which almost preceded the court case. And what they began to speak to were young individuals who were involved in gangs in Manchester, mm. and almost set the scene mm. for the court case. And it's that once that begins to take place, that the police and the CPS narrative dominates those headlines, then it's extremely difficult for campaigners yeah. and activists to disrupt that narrative. And that's increasingly my concern. Mm. So they were making yeah. references to gangs that existed in Manchester 20, 30 years ago. Some of the young people in this trial were 14, mm. 15, 16 year old individuals. These gang names preceded mm. even the birth of some of these individuals who are now being tarnished or labelled mm. um, using those gang narratives. So for me, it's that becomes the really difficult challenge because then we have Andy Burnham coming in and he naturally gravitates towards those police narratives and the tabloid narratives and has to be seen to be responding to those concerns that yeah. Mr and Mrs Joe Bloggs in Bolton West may well have. Um, so that's a concern and I'm really interested in your views on how we can begin to disrupt some of these narratives and how maybe students yeah. in the university can begin to build alternative narratives and media positions as yeah. a way of countering some of these ideas. I mean, I, I work with the, uh, I do some work with the Somali community in Mossside and, you know, they've, 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 there have been some quite high profile cases at Manchester Crown Court, you know, sexual offences and some of the hysteria kind of, you know, which has been raised around these cases makes it really hard and they, they feel very negative portrayal um, and especially with the young people in gangs, then it's, it's very difficult to to reclaim that for themselves. And, you know, they started their own newspaper, they're looking at starting a radio station, uh, and, and it's something we're involved in as a university to help give them that voice. So um, hopefully that will only go from strength to strength. Absolutely, but there's also a historical context to this as well, isn't there? That black and brown communities and newly arrived communities have often been presented as the crime problem. Um, so we can go back to Windrush and we can talk about mm -hmm. 1940s and 50s. There's always been groups and communities that have been presented as the crime problem. Um, I would argue, therefore, that there's some continuity in terms of yeah. what's taking place here. And at the moment, we talk about the Afghan community or the Somali community or the early arriving African communities as potential crime problems. Um, but in the 1970s, it was the white Irish community. Um, we've always had those discourses around the Polish community. So there's always been these constructs of panics. Mm. Um, and the association of crime with those newly arriving communities. Yeah. Um, and in my neck of the woods in Glasgow at the turn of the, the 20th absolutely. century, or the early 20th century, the Fenians and the Irish problem and so on. And absolutely. So there's a crime there. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. Patrick, you, you were asking whether young students have a, a potentially a new narrative image, and I'm going to put you on the spot a wee bit. You're, you're new to this, but reporting on last night's event, did you, did you feel you were able to give a fair representation of what went on last night? Um, I think it was a fair representation from what the people in the audience were trying to say, which I know from looking at some of Roxy Legain's tweets this morning, she was not impressed with the outcome. She doesn't feel that any of what was said was really listened, really addressed. 
and that um, you know more needs to be done. So I think we need to voice the people of these communities more. You know, they need to be heard. We need to figure out ways in which they can express their views to the police, to the mayor and... I think that's really interesting actually because one of the people in the audience talked about knife crime in Glasgow. Right, so my hometown, and how the portrayal of that in the media now is quite different from Life Crown in Manchester or London or wherever. Um, and the simplistic view of it is that it's mostly white, white on white crime, whereas elsewhere it's kind of black on black crime, with those horrible, horrible cliches. But one of the things that has happened in the treatment of knife crime in, in Glasgow, but Scotland more widely, is I think people have begun to do what you were saying, Imogen. They've begun to listen to communities and communities have begun to have a say in what goes on, to have a say in their own policing. And that's partly a result of devolution. It's partly a result of a massive problem that, that the city has had for many, many generations. But the, the incidence of nice crime has gone down. But one of the other things is that the, the penalties for possession of a blade are much higher and they're automatic. And I think a lot of politicians would say that's one of the things that has changed things. Not stop and search, because stop and search is very controversial in Scotland, but heavy and immediate penalties for people carrying a blade under any circumstances are pretty tough. I think it was a really valuable moment, however, yesterday when Andy Burnham made reference to some of the factors that may result in individuals and young people carrying a knife. And it was that notion of fear. Yeah. yeah and how yeah. fear may be a driver. Now, I have concerns, therefore, around deterrent deterrent strategies and mm. deterrent policing strategies where young people are fearful for their lives. And I argue, as a young person growing up, if I was a young person growing up, the media discourse and the views of knife crime and that sense of risk is so profound that you would think either I'm never going to leave my home, so I'll live a virtual line on, mm. life online, or if I go out, I'm going to make sure I go out with two or three people because I fear that something and may happen to me. And are you saying that's fed into by the media? Pardon? Are you saying that's fed, but that's created by the media? Well, it's either communicated through the media or there's a reality of knife crime within those communities. And, every, I'm, yeah. and, I'm, and I'm trying to work out to what extent it is. But mm. the reality is, is that those people who have the highest fear of knife crime are probably those individuals who will never experience sure. being a victim of knife crime. It will tend to be older individuals, mm. individuals who do not live in particular communities, who have that fear. And that's who... Andy Burnham kept referring back to as the public, almost not acknowledging the people in the audience as the public. And that was the tension within that space. But just quick, briefly, on another piece of research, there was some work done by Brennan from the University of Hull. And what he's identified, and this was over 20,000 uh, young people, was that the experience of over-policing and stop and search builds mistrust in the police. And he found those were the most powerful predictors for knife carrying. Not poverty, not the community you're in, but over-policing and mistrusting the police mm. and fear, being a victim of crime previously. And I think that's a really important piece of work because no deterrent strategy <laughs> will therefore stop individuals from carrying knives. And a young person articulated it in a Howard League report where he said, look, if the police want to give me four years for carrying a knife, I'd rather that than being a victim, a dead victim of knife mm. crime. And if young people are having to make those decisions, no deterrent policy is going to stop them from carrying that knife. Yeah, and I think one of the other things, going back to your point there earlier on, Dave, there are very few journalists probably who live or work in amongst those communities that are likely mm. to, to find that tension. And therefore, it's, it's hard for journalists to, mm. 
to know the reality of it and therefore to report it accurately. Can I ask you a quick question, yeah, just in relation on. to the Glasgow stuff? Go on, yeah. um, because there's some suggestion as well that whilst everyone talks about this significant reduction in knife crime in Glasgow, and I don't believe for a second there's no knife crime in Glasgow at the moment. However, that aside, people argue that what was possibly more significant in driving that reduction was a significant investment in funding around the Commonwealth Games, particularly in the East End of Glasgow. And that was possibly a better explanation for the reduction in knife crime than any policing strategy. Absolutely. I mean, part of the part of the strategy, I think, as I understand it, was disrupting the, the gang culture, not the gangs themselves, perhaps, but the gang culture, disrupting that. And certainly the investment that went into the East End was... Um, Glasgow changed a lot in 2014, and Glasgow also changed a lot in 1990 when it was European City of Culture, and there was a lot of big investment in some of the run-down areas of the city. And certainly it has happened in 20, 2014. One of, the, one of the areas where the Commonwealth Games took place has, has serially had the lowest turnout in elections, on the order of 15% in some cases, and that's changed now new housing going in, new community centres being uh, a new investment in schools and so on. So yeah, that those wider issues are a big, big part of it. And you'll only seriously address some of those crime issues by addressing the bigger issues in the economy. And it is lack of facilities, which is obviously we've had austerity. Yeah. The lack of youth work, lack of community centres, you know, young kids might be, you know, my lad just kind of goes out with his mates around the streets. Um, I'm sure there are things to do, but actually, in terms of youth workers, that whole provision we had for we've built up since the 60s, that's just disappeared overnight. Yes, absolutely overnight, and we acknowledged that yesterday, didn't we? Yeah. The numbers of youth organisations who are in that space, who have had those resources stripped from mm -hmm. them, and they were the same individuals who young people who feared for their lives yeah. could have gone and spoken to. I'm worried about Johnny Boy down the road oh, because it keeps space. To, that safe space within which they can have those conversations. And my concern is that what we want to do is invest this now into the police to build these multi-agency arrangements where young people don't trust the police. And I don't think there's anything particular about mm. young people not trusting the police. Yeah. For over generations, people have not trusted the police. Um, but essentially, they cannot be the, the vehicle through which we try to facilitate this change. It needs to be young community-based and maybe a reinvestment back into those yeah. youth workers and those youth centres of um, bygone days. It's all fascinating stuff. We could go on, I think, probably all afternoon. Patrick, mm. thanks very much indeed for coming on, on the show. Um, we'll, we'll put some links into to your work uh, in the show notes and to some of the other statistics surveys that you, you mentioned and you looked at. Thanks very much indeed for coming on Bank Thank to you very much. So uh, a reminder that you're listening to the Bang to Rights podcast from the Journalism Department here at Manchester Metropolitan Union. Remember, you can contact us on Twitter at RightsBang. If you've got a view on any of those issues in crime reporting and the coverage of stop and search and knife crime and so on. Now, we're recording this on Wednesday lunchtime. And Dave, one of the items in the news overnight was that we got sight of the first of the court documents from the Mail on Sunday, mm -hmm. spelling out some of the details of their defence in the breach of privacy action, which the Duchess of Sussex, I think we can still call yes. her the Duchess of yes. Sussex, Meghan Markle, is taking against the paper. Now, what, what do the documents tell us? Well, interestingly, I think that all the press have got on with the, the main headline, which is that uh, his father may appear against her in court, which, because uh, he's cited as a respondent, yeah. um, that would be, that's headline news, of course, you know, having him brought over here. And I think, obviously, to give his side in what's quite an acrimonious battle that he felt apparently compelled to 
you know, to, to release the letter. And to defend his own reputation because I mean, Megan was bad-mouthing yeah, him. Yeah, I mean, the, the press, you know, the mail have gone, um, it's quite a lengthy defence. It's interesting, actually, the way, um, I mean, you talk about privacy, but they're also bringing in copyright, um, which is interesting given, you know, the royal family's previous history with Prince Charles and his diaries, uh, a case he won. Um, and I think the mail is saying, actually, a letter can't be copyright. I think it will be interesting to see what judges think of that. Because it sounds like Meghan is saying in response to that, well, I kept my own copy. I yes. just didn't send, I just didn't make one copy and post it off to no. him. She kept her own copy. I mean, it's misuse of private yeah. information, yeah. potentially uh, breach of confidence, copyright. I mean, we'll just chuck everything out this. But, uh, I mean, the mail is very ebullient and... Uh, they do, do they? What, what's Very the chances, do you think, of playing one person's privacy off against another person's privacy? I mean, ultimately... Saying that's, for, you know, my defence was I had to defend my own reputation. Well, it's in a different jurisdiction, for a start, yeah. but also public interest. Um, does it add to a debate of general interest? Um, I, I think it's skewed. It's a difficult one because they're, they are part of a real family, which comes under close scrutiny, publicly funded, so they have a responsibility... How far they can they be expected to have a private life? How much is salacious, or how much does it point to a deeper rift? How much, how much should the public know or be or interested in? Uh, it's quite a complex issue. I mean, previous uh, decisions, legal decisions, that have gone in favour of you know the royal family. Duke of Sussex, no, Wessex. Yeah, Sussex, actually, sorry. They won the case against Splash News Agency through the helicopter taking pictures. Um, Prince Charles has won his case. So I think, precedent-wise, the mail might be on, you know, sticky ground, but it's going to be one hell of a court case. It will be. <laughs> and, I mean, Meghan Markle, I think, in response is saying, well, even though she is Duchess of Sussex, member of the royal family She's and so on, she has a reasonable person. expectation of privacy, which yes. is the, the kind of key phrase in the legislation. But, 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 as of Monday and the Sandringham summit, they're now kind of off at a distance from the royal family. That meant, although they're still public figures. Still public so figures, So in terms yeah. of, uh, you know, privacy rights, you know, you could argue Article 10, who is a public figure, that extends, extends beyond... You know, the celebrities, of course, the yeah. sporting stars. So I'm not sure if that argument will wash, but uh, but of course, even celebrities and public figures have a right to private life, as yeah. you know, the Naomi Campbell reeling showed. Yeah. Um, it's about proportionate coverage, uh, how much detail, and a private letter is is meant to be just that. Imogen, we were talking about a whole lot of this in one of the, the first-year units mm-hmm. that you're part of, Journalism and Media and Society, yesterday. And we were talking about the Sandringham Summit and a whole lot of other things. And the, the, the nitty-gritty detail of the statement that, the, that Harry and Meghan put out um, last week says that we're now off this roundabout. We're leaving this, the royal rota, as it's called. Yeah. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Um, so they just obviously don't want to be involved in the royal family as such anymore, unless called upon, and then they'll attend certain events, but I thought it was interesting how they said that they no longer wanted to speak to papers such as The Sun, the Daily Mail, you know, tabloid papers, because obviously they're just, you know, not writing the truth, not writing what Meghan and Harry have told them. And, and I think Harry, 
very in particular is very concerned about the portrayal of, of his wife and, and and Meghan being kind of hounded by those traditional newspapers and so they want to steer themselves away from that and kind of be much more in charge of their yeah. their own press their own media and so on yeah yeah I agree yeah, yeah. Dave do you think that will work uh, I think you're looking at yesterday's song they were very came down very heavy uh, against you know saying things like Harry was, we've always had a really good relationship despite her ups and downs, we've always supported them, there's no, this idea of racism is completely nonsense, you know, there's no set agenda against them, uh, we've always supported them. And actually, you know, the, the idea of, uh, of right wing, you know, does support the monarchy generally, but of course the idea of us, you know, dipping into salacious stories and brotherly riffs, it all feeds into that media frenzy. Um, I think it would be difficult to escape the press. You can't just jump off. You can jump off and row around the back, but you're still in the public eye. I think they're quite naive in that respect, and I have some sympathy for, you know, royal correspondents who, you know, for years have observed the protocol to a degree. Uh, whether, the, you know, I, I suppose what Harry is good at getting into is a situation where, you know, similar to his mother, mm -hmm. where the paparazzi, you know, could be said contributed towards his death. Whether we're in that situation now again, I don't know. Can you just jump off and become a friend of social media and other outlets? Who knows? Mm. It's uncharted territory in a way. Absolutely. So we'll, we will probably come back to this. I mean, we'll certainly come back to the Meghan Markle um, privacy case as and mm. when. Um, and yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how, how all of this develops. But uh, we're, we're just about to, to wrap up for today. Before we do that, Dave, what's, what have you got coming up in classes? In fact, week? yesterday I did privacy with the uh, exactly. masters. Yes. Yeah. And as uh, we talked about, out of the Duke of Sussex case. Uh, and next week we're going to start looking at IPSO and uh, ethics and regulation. OK, well, that is it for this week and um, first part of season four. Remember to tweet us at RightsBang if there are issues that you'd like to cover in future episodes uh, throughout 2020. Remember, you can subscribe to Bang to Rights now on Spotify, whoopee, Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher and we'll drop straight onto your podcast feed. And you can also find us on the Northern Quota SoundCloud feed. That's all one word, MMU Northern Quota. And do please read Imogen Campion's piece on the Northern Quota website. Uh, in the meantime, we have been Bang to Rights. Thank Dave. Thanks, Pete. And thanks, Imogen. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you soon.